saying, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sacrificed sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as the believer in, which, in whichever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person should, be, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they're in when God called them. Thank you. Uh, well, that was, uh, that was quite a gear shift, wasn't it? <laughs> We've gone, gone from the kiddie pool to the deep end in a serious kind of a way. Um, these are, this is what we're talking about tonight. These are hard, big topics that we're going to be discussing. And... Um, I do feel the need to give a little bit of a, a disclaimer, uh, which is to say that, you know, uh, we're going to be talking about marriage and divorce and sex. And I realise that not everybody in this room is over the age of 18. You're, some of you are here with your parents. In my house, uh, we do something called earmuffs. Uh, and so if there's something that I don't want my kids to hear, there's a bit of this going on so that they don't hear. Um, parents, this is a PG sermon, okay? Parental guidance recommended. You can make decisions about whether your kids are in here for this, very happy for them to be. 
Uh, there may be some conversations that need to happen afterwards. Why don't we pray? Uh, because we're going to need God's help as we come into this passage. So let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it speaks truth and that every single word is true. And so even as we come to topics like these tonight, which are so sensitive for so many of us, we know that what you are speaking is both true and good. So give us the grace that we need to receive your word as true and good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> as I start, I, I, I want to say as well, coming to the topic of marriage, singleness, sex, divorce, and uh, approaching those topics with such a large group of people means that there are going to be people in all sorts of different circumstances within the room. Uh, there are some people here who are married or shortly to be married and quite happy about it. Some people here who are single and are quite content being single. But then the opposite is true as well. There are people here who are single and are quite dissatisfied with being single. There are people here, I suspect, who are married, who are finding marriage pretty tough. There'll be people who've been touched by divorce. They'll be separated. There'll be remarried people. There will be those who've been widowed. There will be lots of different circumstances in this room. Uh, I get that. Uh, but I, I think there's a common denominator here. I reckon every single one of us at this point, the thing we have in common as we come to 1 Corinthians 7 is that sinking feeling in the pit of our stomach where we say, do we, do we really have to talk about this? Like, does this have to be the topic that we do? It's like four weeks till Christmas, not even. Couldn't we find something more positive to talk about? Really, more talks on sex and relationships from church. It's just so uncomfortable. And if that's how you're feeling, I suspect it is, then I want to say I sympathize with you. I get that, believe me. I feel similarly. Uh, the problem is that um, this is what God's word says. God sets the agenda in his word and we are committed to preaching our way through books of the Bible and when books of the Bible take us into territory that we wouldn't otherwise choose for ourselves, we say thank you God for making us confront some things that we wouldn't otherwise choose to confront. And in God's wisdom, he's decided that this is what we're going to be talking about tonight. So we can't avoid it. Uh, the other thing that I would say if you, is if you are feeling reluctant about coming to this topic, I would say let's not be naive about the, the area of sex and relationships and marriage and such. Uh, because you, you might think, gosh, I really would rather not talk, not hear preacher bang on for 30 minutes talking about these topics, these sort of issues. Don't be naive, though. Do realise that you are hearing sermons about this every day of your life. The world is preaching at you about sex and relationships and marriage and what they're for and what they mean and what they're supposed to look like. Uh, we live, I'm sure this is not news to anyone, in a sex-obsessed culture. And the question that we have to ask, actually, it's not do I want to hear about this, but who am I going to hear about this from? Uh, do I want to hear about it from our world or do I want to hear about it from God's word? You know, uh, if, if you were looking for great advice about how to grow a really superb beard, like top-notch, just immaculate, couldn't ask for anything more, kind of a beard, I suggest to you that I would be the wrong person to ask. And that should be obvious to you right now, I think. Uh, I'm not the authority on such things, obviously. Um, in, a, in a similar way, you've got to ask the question, well, who's got the authority to, to talk about matters of sex and relationships and those sort of things? Who's the expert here? It, should it be our world who gets to teach us about this thing? Well, think about the credentials of our world right now. In Australia, uh, marriages are at an all-time low. Did you know that? The rate of marriage in Australia, lowest it's ever been. Uh, in Australia, uh, rapidly, 
Concepts of gender are being divorced from concepts of biological sex. That's much more common in thinking these days. Uh, in Australia, one third of all internet traffic is related to pornography. So you tell me, is the world qualified to teach you about such things? I would suggest that God is qualified to teach you about such things because God is your creator. He is the one who designed you. He designed human relationships. And it's when we turn to him as our creator that we learn how to flourish, how to live life to the full. And so even if you're here tonight and uh, you are cynical about Christian things, you're looking on from the outside, or even if you are here as a convinced Christian, I'm pretty sure none of us in this room could say with a straight face that our world has got this whole area figured out. I think that's obvious, right? Our world is drastically off kilter when it comes to topics like this. So I suggest to you that it is worth hearing what the Bible has to say. And uh, I do want to say as well that this, 1 Corinthians 7, is not the only thing that the Bible says about sex and marriage. Uh, it does not say everything. And you can tell that from verse 1 of this passage uh, because the Corinthian church apparently has written the Apostle Paul a letter asking him some questions, and now it seems like chapter 7, Paul's going to get around to replying to those questions that they've answered. So it's not going to say everything on the matter, but it is going to respond to their questions with some very in-depth kind of answers. Now, the second half of this chapter, which we'll come to next week from verse 25, that's all about the topic of singleness. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about that next week, but that's next week. This week, marriage and sex. So what do we see in this passage? I think the first thing that we see that Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians here is that sex in marriage is good in God's eyes. It's his big point at the start. Sex in marriage is good in God's eyes. So let's read again from verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So you can see there in quotation marks, this is the thing that the Corinthians have said to Paul, and now Paul is going to respond to their statement. So he does that in verse 2. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Right? There's, there's his instruction. Married people should have sex. And you've got to ask, well, wh where does that command come from? Like, Why would the Apostle Paul need to command married people to have sex? What was going on with married people in Corinth that they weren't having sex and needed to be told to have sex? I mean, they didn't even have Netflix back then. What were they doing with all their free time if they weren't having sex? I don't know. Now, keep in mind as well, we've, we've over these last six or so weeks, seven weeks, as we've been in 1 Corinthians, we've, we've seen that the Corinthian culture, that city, was a very uh, sex-obsessed city. Uh, and it wasn't just the, an obsession outside of the church. It had leaked its way into the church. You remember that. We heard a couple of chapters ago about a Corinthian Christian who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Absolute debauchery. Some of the Corinthian Christians were living completely sexually debauched lives. Paul's been trying to correct that. But it seems like here now in chapter 7, there are some other people within the church who have looked out at the culture and looked at the influence of sexual morality in the church and have reacted against that and have run the complete opposite way from the sexual morality they have seen. The pendulum, if you like, has swung completely to the other side. They've concluded, actually, that the most godly thing to do, if you want to be really spiritual, if you want to be really close to God, it's not just about fleeing from sexual immorality. No, the godly thing to do is flee from sex altogether. That seems to have been their conclusion. And, look, Christians are often caricatured like this 
of having this really negative view of sex, being really afraid of sex. You know, it's the Ned Flanders kind of mentality, you know, where, where Christians supposedly think that sex is the thing that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. You know, sex is dirty and wrong. And, you know, Christians will only reluctantly agree to have sex in marriage, but they'll do it out of duty and they'll do it with their eyes closed and they'll think of England the whole time. You know, that's the kind of, that's the caricature of the Christian view of sex. And, and look, there are historical reasons why Christians have earned that reputation. We won't go into them now, but suffice it to say that the Bible's perspective on sex is nothing like that. The Bible says time and time again that sex is a good gift from God that should be enjoyed by married couples unashamedly and frequently. That's the Bible's teaching on sex. And so Paul's advice here at the beginning of chapter 7 is do not let the pendulum swing all the other way. Uh, don't conclude that all sex is bad. That's not how you're supposed to do theology by reacting against what you see. No, no, no. Come back to the plumb line of God's word. See what the truth is in God's word on the matter. And when you do that, when you come back to God's word, you discover that the Bible says unequivocally there are only two types of sex. There is consensual sex between a husband and wife within marriage and there's everything else. And everything else the Bible calls sexual immorality. But sex within marriage, consensual sex between a husband and wife, the Bible says that's good and that's godly actually according to the Bible. And so no matter how depraved the culture that we are in gets, Christians should never react away from the truth that sex is a good gift of God. And so Paul is writing here to kind of correct this like really super spiritual way of thinking. And he's telling Christian couples that they should have sex in marriage. And the argument goes on there from verse uh, 3 and 4. Keep reading with me. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Now, half of what Paul is saying there was pretty commonplace thinking in that day and age. The idea that the husband had authority over the wife's body, that was nothing new. The rest of the culture, the Greek-Roman world believed that. But half of what he said, to teach that actually the, the wife has authority over the husband's body as well, that was revolutionary. Christians were the only ones teaching that. And that is the Christian view of things, if you like. And did you notice in these, in these verses, the language is not that a husband has the right over his wife's body and a wife has the right over her husband's body. No, Christians don't subscribe or they shouldn't subscribe to that idea of conjugal rights as if it's okay to demand sex from your spouse. That is not a Christian way of thinking. Uh, no, we, we don't have rights over each other. We have duties to each other. That's the Bible's way of thinking. Uh, and it's actually the Bible's position on a whole range of things that we ought not to think of our rights over someone or our rights in a situation, but rather to think of our duty in that situation. It's a much more healthy kind of a way to think about things. Because it is, is absolutely terrible in marriages when sex gets weaponized, when sex gets withheld and commoditized. Of, I will only give you sex if you do what I want you to do. That kind of way of thinking leads to misery and resentment in marriages. That's not how Christians ought to approach sex within marriage. No, Christian husbands and wives 
should use their time, their money, their conversation, their affection, and yes, their bodies to serve each other, not to look to be served by the other. We are to give ourselves to our spouse for their good. That is the godly thing to do. And in fact, Paul, Paul says here that to fail to provide sexually for your spouse is to defraud them. That's the, the word he uses in verse 5 there. We've got it translated as deprive them. Don't deprive your spouse. It's literally the word defraud. It's the word you would use if you were withholding pay from your workers, the wages that they were due. You are defrauding your spouse if you fail to provide for them in this way. And so realize that he's, he, he's, he's not saying that it is more spiritual of you to abstain from sex so that you can have a, a double-length quiet time tonight. That's not the more spiritual option here. No, the godly thing to do is to love your spouse, provide for their needs. Now, to be clear, Paul does say that there is an option for married couples to abstain from sex when they can mutually agree upon it for the purpose of prayer. But, but and it's a, a very quick but that he includes here, it should only be for a limited amount of time, a short time. Paul knows how weak we are, how, how vulnerable to temptation. And so then after a short time, married couples should come back together so they won't be tempted. But the clear message here in this first seven verses is that sex within marriage is good in God's eyes. And you don't have to abstain in order to be truly spiritual. I think that's the essence of what he says there in verse 7, right? That we've all got these different spiritual gifts and we ought to embrace the situation that God has put us in. And so for you, if you are married, then don't behave as if you're single. Embrace the good gift that God has given you, the good gift of sex within marriage. So that's that, his, his first point. And what I want to try and do is just to offer some advice for us. And I'm going to try and offer this advice without offending people or offending as few people as I can at least. Um, if, if you are a married couple here tonight, please hear me saying in love that you need to be sensible. Uh, you need to ensure within your marriage that sex is frequent enough so that you're not leaving one or both of you dangerously open to sexual temptation. I think that is a pretty obvious implication of what Paul has just said. Now, uh, you might be thinking, what is frequent enough? Can you give us a definition, Mark? No, I cannot. Uh, that's for you to decide graciously between yourselves as a married couple what that looks like for you. And, of course, let me qualify this and say that there will definitely be seasons where sexual intimacy will be more challenging due to illness, childbirth, or what have you. But the principle here still applies that sex within marriage is good in God's eyes and married couples ought not to put it off any more than they need to. And so married couples here, uh, it might be time for you to have a delicate conversation with one another. And please do consider this now your encouragement to do so. You are authorised to have those conversations at the right time. Uh, now, I want to be clear as well, we're talking a lot about marriage and sex here. Please don't get the impression that uh, marriage is all about sex. It's not. Sex is not the main point of marriage and pleasure is not the only purpose of sex. Uh, but sex is one of God's crucial gifts given to develop intimacy and bond together a married couple. And so married couples, another implication you ought to think about working at your sex life, not neglecting it. Because uh, we all know that life is busy and stressful and tiring, and so you need to be sensible about your schedules. Uh, you need to make sure you've got enough energy and time for one another because sex within marriage is good in God's eyes. Uh, 
I do think it is a recipe for disaster when married couples spend more time talking with their work colleagues, for instance, about the deep things of life than they do with their spouse. I think it's a recipe for disaster when married couples spend more time when they're together listening to the conversations of people on TV than having conversations with their spouse that they're actually sitting next to. You need to keep working at and growing in intimacy. Now, if you don't know what to do with that challenge and where to take it and what that even looks like, then let me uh, recommend for you a couple of books, a couple of good Christian books that you could pick up and read with your spouse to help think this through. Two books here, Married uh, Married for God by Christopher Ash, and The Best Sex for Life by Patricia Wierikun. These are both uh, faithful, reliable Christian authors. These are helpful, down-to-earth, biblical books that will help you to think through how to develop intimacy in your marriage, which I do suggest if you're going to read it, read it with your spouse. Uh, there's certainly many, many other good books on this topic. We can recommend other ones to you as well, but this could be a good place to start. Now, uh, that might feel a bit too daunting. That is that is the sermon application from tonight if you're a married couple. So let me try and bring it a little bit further down to earth, something that you could do immediately in response to what God is saying here. Perhaps your obedience to God, married couples, this week just looks like you ought to make a deliberate effort to spend a romantic evening with your spouse. Maybe that would be a good way to apply this passage into your lives this week. Let me, do, let me say as well, um, if you're not married, then this does not apply to you. I'm not telling you if you are dating to do this. Please be clear on that. Um, Paul will talk to you if you are not married. You're in the category of single. He'll talk to you next week when we look at uh, the rest of this chapter in more detail. But there is a word here to uh, single people uh, in verses 8 and 9. And I'll just look at it quickly here in verse 8. Paul says to the single people, it is good for them to stay unmarried. Uh, Essentially, uh, if you are unmarried, then I want you to hear tonight loud and clear that the Bible is saying that there is nothing wrong with you. It is good for you to be in the situation that you are in. Singleness is a good thing, biblically speaking. Christians value singleness and we value you. Uh, Now, in a world like ours that really does devalue singleness, where where relationship is seen as the, the ideal, this should be a great comfort to you if you're single. This has all sorts of implications for the way that we as a church family relate to one another and involve ourselves in one another's lives. We're going to think more about that next week, but... Please do hear the Bible validating where you are tonight. So sex within marriage is good in God's eyes, first point. Second point, a little bit more soberly, uh, divorce is bad in God's eyes. That's where Paul goes next. Divorce is bad in God's eyes. Let's read from verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Uh, We all know, I take it, that divorce is a big problem in our country. Uh, The most recent statistics I could find tell us that there is one divorce for every 2.3 marriages that happens in Australia at the moment. Uh, That may not be a surprise to you. You may know those sort of statistics. What may surprise you, though, is to know that Divorce was a massive issue in the ancient world in the time that Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Historians will say, actually, that the most common way for marriages in the ancient world to end was by a divorce, not by death. 
if you look back at, at Greco-Roman um, marriage certificates, you go to the museums and look at these things, they're worded in such a way that expects that the way this marriage will end is going to be by, via divorce, not by one partner outliving the other. And so uh, I'm just making the point that as Paul speaks into this area of divorce, he's speaking to a culture that's actually pretty similar to ours on this, a, a culture where divorce is common and easy. And Paul says, without equivocation, if you are married, stay married. Don't get divorced. That's, that's a simple command. Again, this is not everything that the Bible says about divorce. Um, and I have to acknowledge, <clears throat> as we come to this, that this is a very painful topic for people who've been touched by divorce. Nevertheless, I want to look at what the, the key thing is that Paul teaches in these verses, which I think is that divorce although it is sometimes possible, uh, it's always a tragedy. It's always destructive. It's always contrary to God's ideal. That's the emphasis of these verses, and that is the balance of the Bible's teaching on the topic of divorce. Um, have you ever thought about why the Bible is like that when it comes to divorce, why the Bible is so down on divorce? I mean, <clears throat> relationships are hard, aren't they? We are flawed and fallible people. Living with us is hard. Doing that for a lifetime, almost impossible. Why is God so consistently opposed to divorce? Well, it's because throughout the Bible, in all sorts of places, in Ezekiel chapter 16, in the book of Hosea, in Ephesians 5, at the end of the book of Revelation, marriage is described as a picture, a great illustration of God's faithful passionate, committed, undying love for us, his people. And so every time a Christian couple get divorced, they tell a lie about God. That is why God is so down on divorce in the Bible, because he would not divorce you. So if you're a Christian, show it by sticking with your marriage, not abandoning things when they get tough. That's what God does for you. He sticks with you. Because the truth is, friends, that God can turn around and bring life and joy into any failing marriage. He is capable of that. Because when you take a failing, struggling marriage and you turn to God and ask for help, all of the resources of the creator of the universe, all of the power of the Holy Spirit are at your disposal. So don't lose hope if you're in a tough marriage. I'm going to make a couple of quick comments about these verses because there's some tricky stuff in here. Uh, you may have noticed on the read-through uh, that there's a very confusing thing that Paul says in verse 10 and in verse 12. Did you pick up on this? Start of verse 10 to uh, the married, he gives this instruction. I give this command and he says, not I, but the Lord. This is one's coming from the Lord. And then in verse 12, to the rest I say this, that is I, not the Lord. Now, uh, what is going on here? Uh, he's making this distinction that some instructions come from the Lord and that some come from him. So is he saying that you know some of these instructions are like ironclad, they have more authority, the ones that come from him, they're just sort of his opinion? Is that what he's doing? Uh, I don't think that's what he's doing, actually, because uh, if you look elsewhere in the Bible, go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, uh, you find that the, the other apostles all recognised and all knew that Paul's teaching was as authoritative as the rest of scripture. 
It was on the same level, same authority. It was the word of God, Paul's teaching. And so the reason, I think, why Paul says that, he makes this distinction between one coming from the Lord, one not coming from the Lord, is because the first time, verse 10 there, he is quoting from the lips of Jesus. You can look it up in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus teaches that, that marriage is for life. And the Corinthians would have been familiar with that teaching from Jesus' own lips. And so Paul's just drawing attention to that. Remember, guys, Jesus said this. And then when he gets to verse 12, talking about marriages between Christians and non-Christians, he's recognising that Jesus actually never explicitly taught on that topic. It's not to say that what he's got to say is less authoritative. It's just recognising one comes from the lips of Jesus and one doesn't. So verse 12 to 16, he attacks this issue, uh, dissects this issue of Christians being married to non-Christians. So let's read verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Uh, Paul is clear uh, in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, that if you are a Christian, you should only marry a fellow Christian. Uh, to be married is to be one flesh. Uh, and so how can you be perfectly united with somebody for whom the most fundamental question of the universe, the question, who is Jesus Christ, sees you on opposite sides of the great divide? So Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6, only marry a Christian. Okay, so what do you do then if you find yourself married to someone who isn't a Christian? Because that's the situation for the Corinthian, a lot of the Corinthians here. They were first-generation Christians. Many of them had converted and their spouse had not yet. So what are they supposed to do if they find themselves in one of these mixed marriages where it probably would have been quite a difficult situation to live in? Quite a lot of friction, you would imagine, in a marriage like that. You know, this non-Christian I'm living with, they don't like that I... I pray to Jesus now. They don't like that I head out to church every week. They don't like where I give my money or the songs that I sing. You know, it's hard. So maybe the thing that I should do if I'm in one of those situations is say goodbye to the non-Christian, separate myself from them because, look, there's plenty of lovely Christians at church I could go and marry. That's kind of the way of thinking. And Paul comes along and he says, no, 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 no. You stay with your non-Christian spouse. You show them your commitment to your promises it's also possible, as the Corinthians were wrestling with this desire towards divorce, that some of these ones who wanted to be really super spiritual, they were kind of uh, rationalising it and saying, well, you know, if I'm married to this non-Christian, well, they'll make me unholy. And if I want to be close to God, then I should say goodbye to everything that is unclean. And that includes my spouse. So should I? this is my out clause now, now that I'm a Christian. And again, Paul says, no, actually, that's not what's going on. Read verse 14 with me. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Right, really simple Bible verse, that one. Um, many of you will have looked at this passage during the week in your home groups, and you will know that this is a very complicated kind of a verse to unpack. Uh, it's pretty confusing, at least on the surface. What is it that Paul means here? Uh, well, the word sanctified, it's a Bible word. It just means set apart. Um, and so you sanctify something when you set it apart for a special purpose, for a noble use. For instance, in the Old Testament, the priest would set apart certain instruments for use in the temple. They were sanctified. Uh, and I think the point here 
Uh, Paul is not saying that you get saved by being married to a Christian. He's not saying that. Look at verse 16. That that can't be what he means. Um, But being married to a Christian actually does change the position that you are in. So, for instance, just as children born to Christian parents, they are not saved by being born to Christian parents. You can't be saved by your relationship to a human, whether that's someone you share a house with, someone you're married to, or your parents. You are only saved by your relationship with Jesus Christ, by trusting him. But children born to Christian parents, they are brought along to church. They are taught the gospel. They are, in a sense, set apart, sanctified. And the same is often true for non-Christian spouses. They are brought along. They share in some of the blessings of the kingdom of God because they're associated with the community of God's people. And so Paul's instruction here is don't leave your non-Christian spouse. Don't be afraid that they will make you unholy. No, the opposite is true. You stay with them. You pray for them. You love them. You show them that by being a Christian, that makes you a better husband or wife than you ever would have been before. And pray, verse 16, that they will be saved by God just as you've been saved by God. You do not have to leave your non-Christian spouse in order to be close to God. Paul does say, though, that in some circumstances, divorce will be inevitable. He says, verse 15 that if the non-Christian spouse you are married to abandons you because you've become a Christian, his language there is that you are not bound in such circumstances. And that's a little bit tricky to know exactly what Paul means there. It's possible he just means you're no longer bound to that individual. It's possible Paul also means that you are free to remarry. Uh, There are different views around this topic, and I don't have time to go into them today, but we're planning on talking about them in the podcast this week, so you can tune in if that's something that's of particular interest to you. Uh, Now, in in a room this size, with this many people in it, uh, I know that there are some people who are divorced here, and I'm guessing that there will be others in this room who are thinking very seriously about getting divorced. That wouldn't be unlikely. And I want to say that there can be situations where separation is the right thing to do, such as in situations of abuse, abusive relationships. If that's the situation you are in, you are right to leave. You're right to make yourself safe, to seek help, to seek the intervention of authorities. In some circumstances, separation and even divorce may be the right thing to do. In some circumstances, though, your marriage may end in divorce uh, and it may not even be your choice. It may be something that is done to you. However... Often, and I think probably perhaps too often, divorce can simply be an act of unbelief. Let me explain what I mean by that. In in marriage, you can start to think, boy, I'm really fed up with the struggle of living with this person and the disappointment that I face day by day. You know, it just saps my life to be constantly bickering, to be in a war and sharing a trench with the enemy. My married life is just misery, day after difficult, bickering day. And, and in those sort of circumstances, what happens is you stop believing that God could ever redeem your marriage. You stop believing that the Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead could ever bring life and joy and laughter back into your marriage. And so you start perhaps to see divorce as your only option, divorce as your only hope. You stop believing that the eternal paradise that God has promised us heaven with him 
pleasures forevermore, that new creation, you stop believing that that promise could ever make up for the misery that you are feeling and for the decades that you put in of faithfully serving God by sticking with your spouse. You, you start to think and, and you realise you can't imagine what it would be like, that, that, that it could be worth it, that anything could make up for this because, well, at that point you've bought the lie that if you don't get happiness now, that you've missed out entirely, that there is nothing that the future could ever offer to make up for not finding fulfilment in relationship now. And so you start to look around. You start to look outside your marriage. start to think that somebody else might just bring that happiness you're after. It's quite possible that there are people who are thinking like that today. And I want to speak to the rest of us who are here tonight. And I want to say that as a church, we have to be better at talking to one another about our struggles in marriage. Uh, married or single, this applies to all of you, whether you're married or single. You, you need to pray for the marriages in this church because marriage is under pressure in our culture. We need to pray that God would protect and strengthen the marriages within our church so that these marriages would be a beautiful witness, a, a, a testimony, a sales pitch to the watching world that life with Jesus is really worth living. Uh, friends, if you are struggling in your marriage, then please know that no marriage is perfect. Uh, we all struggle. And so please do not be too proud to seek help. Admit the truth. Be honest. Find people here that you can talk and pray with and you can share struggles with. Find friends who are married, friends who are single. Bring them into your life so that it doesn't have to get to breaking point before you start to talk about some of the little niggles in your marriage. And please, if you, if you are here tonight and you are fed up with the struggle and you are sitting here thinking that you've pretty much just lost hope for your marriage, can I say, please don't go home like that. Please. Please talk to somebody tonight. Come talk to me, talk to a friend, talk to a home group leader, talk to one of the other pastors or elders. Do not walk out of here believing the lie. Come and talk and pray with someone. Sex in marriage is good in God's eyes. Divorce is bad in God's eyes. And finally, lastly, quickly, from verse 17, Paul says that actually obedience is best in God's eyes. Uh, these final verses from verse 17, if you've got your Bible in front of you, they, um, they, they take a bit of a, a left turn, don't they, very quickly. We've been talking about sex and marriage and divorce, and now Paul just jumps into this topic of slavery and circumcision. What's that all about? Well, I think what Paul is doing here is he's, he's talking about topics that they would have understood in order to kind of make an illustration to apply it then into their thinking about marriage. Because uh, circumcision and slavery, you see, are two of the, the greatest kind of social divisions of the time, and they had huge impacts on your life. And Paul comes along and he addresses these topics, and he basically says, guys, don't you see, it's kind of meaningless at the end of the day. It's inconsequential whether you are circumcised, uncircumcised, slave or free. It doesn't matter. Don't you see that God calls people to himself from both sides of that divide? You can be a Christian and be in either camp there, guys. Don't you get that? Your situation and circumstances actually matter a whole lot less than you think they do. Now, keeping God's commands, that's the thing that really matters, verse 19. And, and did you notice that Paul basically repeats himself three times here? Verse 17, verse 20, verse 24 says the same thing. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Remain in the situation you were in. And that should have been a pretty obvious application then to the area of marriage for the Corinthians. You see, you can serve God 
no matter your circumstances. Uh, you do not need to change what you are, uh, whether you are married or whether you are not, whether you get married or not. It's of little consequence eternally. At the end of the day, marriage is just a copy of the real marriage between Christ and the church. In fact, there won't even be marriage in heaven because uh, the shadow that is marriage, will have the fullness will have arrived. The thing to which marriage points will be here, a better gift, a better union between Christ and his church. So don't get hung up on whether you're married or single. What matters most is are you serving God where you are in the situation that you're in right now? Friends, you do not have to pretend that you like being single if you don't. That's okay. You do not have to pretend that your marriage is a happy one if it's not. But if you are a Christian, you do need to get on with serving God in the situation that he has put you in without withdrawing into a, a fantasy of what your life could be like if it was just a bit different, if things changed, what you wish you had. If only I was married, if only if I had that security and that, that safety and that support, think of how much better my life would be, how much I'd be able to serve God and be happy to do so. Oh, marriage is so hard. If only I was single, if only I didn't have all that burden and responsibility, if only I was more free, think of how much more time and how happy I would be to serve God. Please don't live in fantasies like that, friends, because fantasies like that just breed dissatisfaction with your actual life. Do not put your life on hold until your circumstances change. The life that God has given you today is the life that God wants you to live, married or single. Right now, this is where God has put you. This is where he's put opportunities for you to serve him. So serve him. Obey him. That is what is best in God's eyes. Whether you are married or single, neither one is a more spiritual way of life. What matters is, am I obeying Jesus Christ in the life he has given me today? Not thinking, well, what would I do if my life was different tomorrow? Remember the words of Jesus? Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here's the truth, friends. Ironically, when you take your eyes off what you hope your life will be like and you just get on with serving God and serving others with the opportunities God has put in your life today, you find a deep sense of joy and fulfilment that you will never find by chasing after the thing that you think you want. This is the truly spiritual life, serving God today. Uh, I'm pretty sure some of what I've said will have offended some of you, um, and I'm sure that this will have been painful for some people. Uh, let me reiterate, if that's you, please don't leave here today without talking with somebody and praying with somebody, praying to the God who raised Lazarus from the dead and can bring life into any situation that you're in, to the God whose perfect son Jesus lived a full and happy life as a single man to the God who will one day bring us into perfect, completed relationship with him in heaven. Don't leave here without talking to him. Let me pray for us now. Oh, almighty God, we want to pour out our hearts to you. You know how tough our circumstances are and how unhappy some of us are with the things, the gifts that you've given us. But, Lord, we hear you telling us, 
to get on with serving you and that that is what counts. So, Lord, please help us, strengthen us in the situations we find ourselves in. Help us not to covet what other people have, but help us to be thankful that we have you, a loving Heavenly Father who is always at our side, always providing for our needs, giving us strength and courage and grace daily to carry on. Please help us to carry on. Strengthen us to love like you've loved us with a committed, undying, other person-centred love. We ask in Jesus' name.